Now we're in chapter 19. This morning I'll be reading Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, where to begin? I, I should say, because I also see there's a, a number of people visiting with us this morning, I, I don't know your stories. I do not say any of these things to target you or your background. I also should acknowledge that I know there are people here who have been through divorce. There are people here who are considering divorce. There are people here with marriages where divorce is not even on the radar, so they're tuning me out at this point. There's people who are going to listen just because they really want to know what I'm going to say about eunuchs and why I felt the need to bring that up. What I hope you see is that this is not going to be about marriage and divorce. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce because Jesus is talking about that here. But there is something deeper at play. There is something more foundational that applies not just to the divorced, not just to the married, not just to the eunuchs, but to all of us. That we have a higher calling. That we are not defined by our station in life, but we have a higher calling to be faithful to God. And we will see that throughout these verses. If you are, This is not going to be a nuts and bolts on what the Bible teaches about divorce because the Bible's teaching on this subject goes beyond what you read here. If you're interested in that, I would encourage you to sign up. There's a little, um, on one of the music stands in the back, there's a little information form. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. There'll be links in there to our Sunday school series from a few years ago where for three weeks, we looked at what the Bible teaches about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage, about singleness. We looked at all those things from the view of the whole Scripture. That's not what we'll be doing this morning. This morning, we're going to look at what Jesus said here. And yes, we'll talk about marriage. Yes, we'll talk about divorce. Yes, we'll talk about eunuchs. But what we're really going to look at is what Jesus says about our calling to be faithful to God in every station of life and how that is possible through Jesus Christ. So for all of us, married, divorced, single, widowed, teenagers, those still young that they think marriage is weird and gross, we all need to attend to the calling of God 
to be faithful. Faithfulness, we see, is not easy. Discipleship, following Jesus, is not easy. Which is why all of us need the Gospel. First, we see the call to be faithful. As we've been reading Matthew's Gospel lately, we keep seeing these, this group of people show up. The Pharisees. They're the, the strict uh, religious leaders. The, uh, the ones who know God's Word inside and out. Plus a whole lot of stuff they've tacked on. And as we've come to see them show up again and again, we've really started to hate these guys. Uh, they're coming after Jesus. They have an explicit agenda to take Him down. And once again, they're testing Jesus. They're trying to trick Him. To trap Him in His words. To get Him to say or do something that will get Him in trouble. And they pick a, co- a topic that's controversial in their day as well as ours. The topic of divorce. In verse 3, they test Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, what they're hoping Jesus will do is either contradict what Scripture says, or He'll stay faithful to a strict interpretation of Scripture and thus make Himself unpopular. Or, as happened with John the baptizer, He'll say something against Herod, who had been divorced, the king, Herod the king, John spoke against Herod's divorce and got himself imprisoned for it and ultimately beheaded. And the Pharisees are like, if we can get him to ruin his popularity, say something wrong, or get in trouble with the law, then we've succeeded. But behind all that, the reason this question was so pernicious, so tricky, was that there was a dispute among the, the Jewish interpreters of God's law that, on this topic. It was one group saying that divorce is only allowed in extremely exceptional cases, usually unfaithfulness or some sort of ritual violation of God's uh, purity. Or the other group said, no, whatever, any cause at all, any reason, get a divorce. Send her out of the house. And you'll notice, you may have noticed, and we'll, we'll address this in a little bit, It's always from the man's perspective. Because in that culture, that was the only one who could divorce. And the wife was usually a victim. And so, it all hinged on this verse that they're referring to in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. In the law, it says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. Feels like I haven't finished the sentence yet, doesn't it? Because that whole thing began with an if. And there's no then. Because it goes on and on and on and describes uh, what God's law prescribes in order to protect the woman who has been divorced. How to keep her from being uh, suffering abuse in this situation. The debate, however, was over what that word indecency meant. If she finds some, he finds some indecency in her. And the one group was saying indecency can only possibly mean that she has profaned God's name or she has been unfaithful. And the other group says, no, indecency is you don't like the way she cooked dinner. You know, she burned the pot roast. And, yeah, that's indecent. Get out of my house. And that was the argument. And so they come to Jesus and said, did Moses really say we can divorce for any cause? What do you say, Jesus? Now, I can't help but notice the similarity between their attitude and the one we saw last week as we were looking at the previous chapter in Matthew 18 as uh, Peter comes up to Jesus and in 18.21 says, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times. And as we looked at that last week, we saw that, that Peter is basically asking, where's the line? When can I stop being forgiving? When am I relieved of my obligation to, to forgive? Now, the question that the Pharisees were debating kind of has the same spirit. Where's the line, Jesus? When am I relieved of my obligation to be faithful to this person I've married and I can leave? When am I released of that? When can I get rid of someone I don't want to be with anymore? And just as Jesus did with Peter in the last passage, he does the same thing here. He says, you are asking the wrong question. So he answers in verses 4-6, through six, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Rather than debate the details of what indecency means in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus looks at the heart. Specifically, in this case, he looks at the heart of God. What God desires. Marriage is not something that human society invented. We didn't invent the idea of marriage. You know, people getting together and eventually we're like, hey, we should get a contract involved in this. And, and a fancy dress and a big party. Let's, let's, let's call it marriage. That's not how marriage came to be. As Jesus is pointing out, what God joined together. It is God who created marriage. Have you ever seen kids uh, get a, a board game that they've never seen before and open it up and, and, and not read the instructions or wait for you to explain it to them, but just start putting pieces out there and, and moving things around and rolling dice and drawing cards and, and having a blast, I'm sure, but not actually playing the game? That's what we do when we don't follow God's instructions for the things He's created. Specifically, in this case, marriage. It is God who has created marriage and sets the boundaries of how it is to be lived out and how it is to be experienced and, and how it can be ended. But we have put the pieces on the board and started playing kind of the way we want to. But Jesus points out here that it is God who has joined them together. That's why when we get married... We don't just, we shouldn't just say, hey, you want to do this? Yeah, sure, let's do this. Let's, let's sign some papers and be married. You know, in the church, as believers, we come before the people of God. We gather an assembly of God's people around. We have a representative of God's authority and minister to speak God's blessing and to call the couple to account. To say, no, you, you are now doing this in front of God. He's going to hold you accountable for how you do this and how you live this. And Jesus says that when God does that, they are no longer two, but one flesh. The man and the woman would be joined together, their lives united very deeply in every way, financially, socially, physically, to the point that they lose their individual identity. They can no longer define themselves or even understand themselves apart from their spouse. And so even though it feels like from a human perspective, two people fall in love, they decide to get married, God says, no, I have joined you together. I am the one that did this. And when that happens, you become one. And my son is very interested in, in density right now. Because, come on, what 10 year old's not really interested in, in density? Uh, and he's, he's, I'm sorry, Trey, not to put the spotlight on you, but he's taking different liquids and mixing them together to see 
how they combine and how they separate. And we've gone through a lot of cooking oil and water. And, and we'll put them together and we shake them up. And then here, Dad, you shake it because you can shake it more. And, and you shake it up until it looks like it's one new thing. Well, what happens when you set it down? Eventually, they separate. Have the two become one? They have not. But if you take some unsweet tea and you take some sugar and pour it in and mix it up, and then you have sweet tea. Can you get the sweet out of the tea? If you let it sit, do they separate? I asked somebody in the first service, if anybody knows if I'm wrong about this, please correct me before I speak to the second service. Because I'm no scientist, but I don't think you can get the sweet out of the tea. I think they have combined and formed a new property, a new thing that cannot be separated. That's what God's view of marriage is. You are not oil and water that over time will separate and return to your individuality. You have combined and created something new. So much so that what you were before doesn't exist. You are new. You are now one flesh. Jesus is saying that's marriage. You don't go back on that. It's not like oil and water. It's like the tea. Now remember, the, the things we've been looking at in the past few weeks, if you've been with us as we've been going through Matthew 18, uh, it, it began with the disciples arguing over who was the greatest, who had the best status in God's kingdom. And Jesus said, no, you're coming at this the wrong way. You're starting with the wrong basic assumption. You need to be like a child. The basic assumption you need to have is that you have no status and God does not reward status. Now, see if you can argue about who's greatest. And then we saw later in that chapter that if someone sins against us, what are we to do? Well, from a human perspective, we either ignore it and move on and try to avoid the awkwardness, or we go in guns blazing and try to shoot them down and shame them and hurt them. That's the worldly way. And Jesus says, no, you're starting from the wrong assumptions. You're starting from the wrong view. This is your brother or sister that God is changing and that, that He loves them and He pursues them like a lost sheep. Now you pursue them and call them into righteousness. You have to start from the right assumption. And then we saw last week, when can I stop forgiving the person who sinned against me? And Jesus says, look, you're starting from the wrong point. If you remember how deeply and how radically you've been forgiven, it changes your whole perspective on forgiving others. And here we are again. What's a good enough reason for divorce? And Jesus says, you're starting with the wrong assumption. Let's go back to the starting point that God gave. That the two are made one. That's God's plan. That's His goal. So the real question in the call to being faithful is not about being faithful to your spouse. It's about being faithful to God and what God's intentions and purposes are. And that makes the application extend far beyond marriage. But to all things. To every stage of life. When am I relieved of my obligation to be faithful? You're not. You are called to be faithful because this is what God has called you to. And in marriage, your faithfulness to your spouse is merely an expression of your faithfulness to, to God who created marriage. When can I start slacking off at work? When have I done my job? If I've worked 40 hours and my boss asked me to work 42, I can start slacking off, right? No, it is God who's called you to your career. He's called you to your vocation. Your faithfulness to your employer makes you faithful. It's an expression of your faithfulness to God. When can I stop being a good citizen? When I don't like the people that are in office? No. Your faithfulness to God is expressed in your faithfulness to all that He has called you to do. He has called you to be faithful. But let us be real. 
Let us be honest for a moment. Because I haven't been honest before? No, let's continue to be honest. I've never understood that phrase. We know it doesn't always work out the way it's intended. So not only does Jesus call us to faithfulness, but He also talks about the reality of unfaithfulness. Because even though we're called to see marriage as a lifetime commitment, the Bible speaks of divorce and it makes accommodation for divorce in various situations which might seem a little inconsistent. As if it was partly written by an idealist. No, 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 the two have become one. But parts of it are like written by a realist. No, but come on, people aren't always going to get along. And so the Pharisees point out that inconsistency in verse 7. Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away when we're unhappy? Notice the language that they chose. The law given through Moses commands us to divorce in a certain way. It commands us, tells us we ought to divorce. How can you say divorce is wrong, Jesus, if it is commanded in the law? But there is one God, one Spirit that inspired the Word of Scripture. and God's Word does not speak in contradiction, but in harmony. And Jesus explains this in verse 8 by saying, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The Pharisees said the law commanded it. Jesus said, no, the law allows it. And the difference between those two is vast. Much of Scripture is not commanding the way God wants things to be. Now, we left that behind as soon as we hit Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, those were God's instructions into a perfect world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all of creation. Leave your your father and mother and become one flesh. These are all commands given in the perfection of a sinless world. And that's where Jesus quotes uh, in Genesis 1.23. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the world as it was meant to be. Marriage as it was meant to be. You know Adam worked in the garden? Adam and Eve, they worked. They had jobs in the garden. Work is a good thing. God commanded work. It wasn't until Genesis 3 when there is sin that work becomes toil and that farming produces thorns instead of fruit. Work as it was meant to be. Friendship, parenting, all these things as they were meant to be. But then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve choose not to follow God's plan. They trust their own wisdom and way of how to live. And everything after that is under a shadow of sin and death. And so now, brothers and sisters, there are commands and there are principles in Scripture that exist because, as verse 8 says, because of the hardness of your heart. Some of God's laws are to tell us what is good, what should always be true. But many of God's laws are to tell us how to live in a world that's broken. Because we live in a world that is broken. So when God gives commands like in Deuteronomy 24 about divorce, He's not saying that life in His perfect kingdom should be this way. No, He's saying, here's how you respond to the brokenness and sin that you've brought into the world. So when the Bible says, as we looked at last week, to forgive your neighbor 77 times, It's not saying that being sinned against and being hurt and offended is normal and right. It's saying here's how you respond in a world that's broken. When the Bible tells slave owners to treat their slaves gently, 
It's not saying slavery is okay. It's saying you who are broken and living in this way, we need to protect the weak. Here's how we mitigate. Here's how we control the burn until all things are made new. The point is that normal doesn't mean right. If you go into a, a, a hospital ward and start taking temperatures where everybody in that whole hallway has the flu or coronavirus or pneumonia or whatever, and you start taking temperatures one after the other, and then you do your math and you find out that the, the average, the normal temperature in that hospital wing is 101.8. Does that make 101.8 a healthy temperature? No. Does that make it normal or right? No. What is a healthy temperature? Sorry, I'm in Fahrenheit here. 98.6. Okay? That's healthy. Doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. Doesn't matter what's common. We are given a standard of what is healthy and right. In the case of divorce, we should never be okay with it. We should never be okay with greed. We should never be okay with abuse or factions or gossip. But the reality is they exist. And there is a way to minimize the damage, a good and right way to control the burn. In the case of divorce in, in Jesus' day and honestly, very often today as well, the victim was usually the wife. 99.9% .9 of the time, it would be the husband sending the wife out of the home off to have no resources, no protection, no shelter, no income, no security, just because the husband was unhappy with her. And Jesus says, that's wrong. In verse 9, He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. What He's saying is, unless she has broken the covenant... By joining herself to another. And she is your wife. And you need to treat her as such. Now, pastor, what about abuse? What about abandonment? What about this? What about that? Again, there's much more that Scripture says about this. And I would urge you to check out our Sunday School series where we, we really dig deeper and look at how Scripture protects the weak and the vulnerable and allows for divorce in cases where that marriage has already been broken. But what we're looking at now is not the details of when the Bible allows divorce. We're looking at the bigger picture of what Jesus is saying. That marriage has been designed by God in a certain way and sin tries to push us in another way. But God's intention does not change. Surely, Pastor, it can't be that strict though. Surely, we're reading it wrong. Just because you have a happy marriage doesn't mean that every marriage is going to be happy. Well, if we look at the way the disciples reacted, we see that they understood what Jesus was saying. And through their response, we see what faithfulness needs. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, if, if a man has to stay married to someone, even if he's tired of her, if we have to stay faithful, even when we don't want to, then it's better not to marry. They understand that what Jesus is saying is nothing short of impossible. A human heart can only put up with so much sacrifice. It cannot, on its own strength, do what is required. And faced with a commitment that has such a high probability of difficulty, maybe it's better to just avoid it altogether. After all, Jesus didn't marry, right? And Jesus answered them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, is it better not to marry? 
Yes. For some people. Not everyone. Some people. And then he goes on to verse 12. Prepare your sensitive ears, or the sensitive ears sitting near you, please. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made, who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For those that don't know what a eunuch is, it is a man who has been physically altered so that he cannot have children. Usually, at least in Jesus' day, through some sort of mutilation. Eunuchs were common in royal households. They, they would not marry, they could not have children or a family, and therefore they were not a threat to a king usually. A eunuch was not going to take over the kingdom and make his son the new dynasty. He wasn't a threat to the queen or to the princesses. And so kings would, would create eunuchs to serve in their court. It was a horrific thing. I want to be very clear on this, that Jesus is speaking of eunuchs, but he means something more. When he says that some people have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, he's not suggesting that anyone physically mutilate themselves. And I shouldn't have to explain that, but it has been done in the history of God's people. Jesus is merely using eunuchs to talk about singleness. Someone who does not have a family or children as a heritage. He's talking about anyone who is not married, whether they have always been that way, whether they have been forced into that situation by another, or whether they have themselves made the choice to stay unmarried in order to serve God with greater devotion. And I want you to pay attention to that. Jesus did make very clear that those are the options. That there are those who choose to stay single, but the reason is for the sake of the kingdom of God. Look at what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, as he should be. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. What Paul was trying to tell the church in a culture obsessed with marriage, Paul was trying to explain that singleness is not a less holy calling. Someone who is single is, is not in a lower estate than the married. He says, look, actually there's something very good, something better about being unmarried because you are less distracted. You do not have all these family obligations that God has called you to. Paul's not saying it's bad to be concerned about your, your spouse and your family and need to devote time and attention to them. In fact, it's very good. And says elsewhere in Scripture, if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever if you're not taking care of your family. But what he's saying is, look, a person who's not married has the time and the energy and the bandwidth to focus on the things of the Lord. But that's not for everyone. Not everyone physically is capable of that. And so Paul says, like Jesus does in verse 12, let the one who's able to receive this receive it. There are those who are gifted and enabled to live in this way, but not everybody is. And those who are not able to should not attempt it, but should get married. And the disciples say, Jesus, if that's the standard, if that's what you want, then being married, it's too hard. So Jesus replies, friends, it doesn't matter. Married or single, it's not easy. 
Not everybody can do this single life. Not everybody can handle the married life. Each is gifted and called in their own way. Now, if you've stuck with me through all this talk of marriage and divorce and eunuchs and singleness, which I hope you understand is really the tip of the iceberg on this, here's the the meat, the heart of what is behind the message. The gospel behind the details here. In all of these callings, whether it's marriage, divorce, singleness, a marriage that's struggling, a marriage that's happy, a marriage considering divorce, regardless of where you find yourself, you have a higher calling, a greater obligation. You are called to be living in a way that's not focused on pleasing yourself, but to instead live in order to please God. That's the assumption that's behind this. If you are approaching marriage, for example, as a means of satisfying your ambitions, your plans, your dreams, your desires, then you are doing that while living for yourself. And you will be, in the end, unsatisfied. You'll be unhappy. If you're pursuing or considering divorce, motivated by the thought that you are unhappy and surely the grass is greener somewhere else, you are living for yourself you will be unsatisfied. If you're staying single because it's easier, it lets you focus on your goals, it requires no personal sacrifice, then you are living for yourself. You will be unsatisfied. That's what's going on underneath and behind all this talk of relationships. Faithfulness to one another, to a spouse, is not, like I said earlier and like the disciples noted, faithfulness To a spouse is not easy. It doesn't feel natural to us. And what I don't want you to hear as we discuss this text, what I don't want your takeaway to be, what I don't want you to walk away from here having written down as your application point is this. Try harder. Stop being selfish. Be more faithful. That's not how we respond to this. I don't want you to hear me saying, don't be unmarried for selfish reasons. Don't end your marriage for selfish reasons. And don't be selfish in marriage. Whether or not those things are true, that's not the main message here. But that's what too much of our understanding of the Christian life boils down to, isn't it? Here's a bad thing. Here's a good thing. Don't do the bad thing. Do the good thing. But Jesus forgives you in between. Very often, that's how we come to understand the message of the Gospel. Do the good thing. Jesus is going to forgive you, but make sure you're doing the good thing. As true as it is that we ought to do what is right, it's not Gospel. I would dare say that most of us know the good and right thing to do. The trouble is not knowing the right thing. The trouble is doing the right thing, isn't it? That's why we need to ask, what is it that faithfulness needs? What is it that empowers and enables faithfulness in our lives? What is it we need in order to be the faithful people that Jesus is calling us to be? Faithful not just in marriage, but faithful in whatever calling He has given us, whatever station in life we are at. Brothers and sisters, in order to be faithful, we need the Gospel. The Gospel is not just the doorway through which the unsaved enter salvation. It is that. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus took your place 
in being punished by God. And as you trust in that and believe in that, He takes away your sin and gives you new life. He has risen from the dead and conquered over death. Amen? Okay, that's true. That is the gospel. But that's not all the gospel. That is the doorway by which we enter the Christian life. But the gospel is the pathway we walk through our whole Christian life. The gospel is the truth about who we are and who God is and what He has done. And that goes far beyond just being forgiven of our sins. That goes on to the new life that He enables you to do. The problem beneath all these issues of marriage and divorce and singleness is that we put them in the wrong place in our lives. We live as if these things, as if our status is necessary to our well-being and our happiness. And so we look to a spouse and we feel disappointed. I don't mean to be pointing at my wife. That's just the way my hands went. We, we look to a spouse and we feel disappointed that, that they're not making us happy the way we want to be happy. And we blame them and it's their fault that we feel insecure. It's their fault we're unfulfilled. It's their fault we're incomplete. And since marriage was supposed to fix that, if I was married to the right person, then we begin to consider ending the marriage. Or we stay single and we think, oh, finally, this will give me the freedom to pursue my true self. Fulfillment, happiness. The Gospel teaches us that none of that ever works. We are going back to a water fountain with broken pipes and wondering why we're coming away thirsty. We're trying to find something where there is nothing. We're trying to find fulfillment, satisfaction, peace, well-being in a relationship, in a stage of life, in a, in a relationship status. If we look to anything else, marriage, divorce, freedom, career, parenting, anything else to make us happy and whole, we will end up unhappy. The follower of Jesus knows that in Jesus I have everything I need. The Gospel tells the child of God that you are loved fully already. You don't need to supplement the love of God with the approval, love, acceptance, fulfillment of any relationship. You have all you need and more. You are secure and provided for. You have purpose. You have belonging. And all of this is true, not because you've found the right person or the right stage of life or that you've left the wrong person or whatever. All these things are true because God loves you in Christ apart from anything you've done. The one who sees that, the one who understands the Gospel, then turns around and sees every relationship in their life in a different way. Not just marriage, but friendship, parenting, neighbors, co-workers, classmates. Every relationship has new potential to become not only not a source of making you more fulfilled, but instead a place where God's grace moves from you into the life of others to be a good friend, to be a good spouse, to be a good parent. To do that, you need the satisfaction that only is available through Jesus. So the message is not try harder, be better at being faithful. No. The message instead is behold the faithfulness of God to you. Because He is faithful, you have all you need. Those that leave a marriage are leaving it because they're looking for something else. Something only the Gospel could provide. Though many who get married 
get married thinking they're going to find what only God can provide. Those who avoid marriage do so because they think the life they're following will provide something that only God will provide. And none of us end up happy because marriage is hard. Not being married is hard because discipleship is hard. Following Jesus is hard. But the good news is, God has given you all you need. He has given you all you need. He has loved you all that you need to be loved. He has provided all that you need to have provided. He has given you all the purpose and all the direction you need. And in some cases, He's given you a spouse that that will partner with you in that and be a blessing to you in that. In some cases, He has not done so. But however He has called you to live, in whatever stage of life you find yourself, Christ is enough. He enables you to be faithful. To Him alone be the glory. He has called you to take up your cross and follow Him. Does that mean marriage is a cross? No. Does that mean singleness is a cross? No. The life of obedience is the cross. And the only reason you take it up, the only reason you can take it up and faithfully follow Him is because He has already done so. He bears the burden with you. He gives you His power to do it. Christian, you are transformed. You are new. Let that change every relationship in your life. Let that change how you see yourself. Let that change what you think you need. And as it does, you will be faithful. Faithful first to God. And through Him, faithful in all you do. In all He calls you to do. Let's thank Him that He carries the cross with us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ who has made all things new. We thank You for the people in our lives that love us. We thank You for the trials that we face. We thank You for the difficulty we experience in marriages, in singleness, in divorce, in hurt feelings, in broken relationships. We thank You that in all these things You do not fail us. We thank You that whatever is taken from us, we have no lack in Christ. You will not fail. Teach us to know and experience and live out that fulfillment in every area of our life. We praise You in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.